Good morning. It's great to be with you all. Uh, yeah, just out of practice with the mask taking off routine here. Uh, it's wonderful to be back. If you would please open your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus is the third book in the Bible for those of you who might be new or unfamiliar. Uh, it's just Genesis, Exodus, and then Leviticus, chapter 26. And while you turn there, I, I just want to say what a, what a joy and blessing it is to be with you all again. And uh, I'm, I'm very thankful for the refreshing uh, month off uh, that me and my family had. It was a great uh, time to reconnect as a family, uh, to have a fellowship with uh, dear uh, brothers and sisters, Christians in other churches, and uh, to spend time especially with some pastor friends. Uh, we are back and we are excited uh, to be back with you all this morning as we start our new sermon series through the book of Leviticus. I want to say I'm particularly thankful for the brothers uh, who preach the word faithfully uh, each week while I was gone. What a gift from God uh, to have multiple brothers uh, who can faithfully proclaim Christ from the scriptures. I'm deeply thankful. Uh, let's look at Leviticus chapter 26. I'm going to read these two verses, verses 11 and 12. The Lord says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. <clears throat> and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Let me pray one more time. Father, almighty God, would you speak to us and show us Christ in the scriptures by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So in 2019, Reader's Digest published online an article entitled, Dumb Laws. Dumb Laws. And the intent was to list several laws from various states in the United States of America that are outdated, irrelevant, illogical, humorous. For example, in uh, the southern state of Alabama, just in case you visit there, you should know this. It is illegal to wrestle a bear. Bear wrestling is illegal. And it's defined as a match or contest between one or more persons and a bear for the purpose of fighting or engaging in a physical altercation. Beware of the bears. Uh, you know, it's also very popular in, in some states of the United States to eat fried chicken. You know, Kentucky fried chicken, Popeyes, good stuff. Uh, in the great state of Georgia, they are very, very proud of their fi fried chicken. So it is illegal and punishable by law to eat fried chicken with utensils. You must use your hands. In the great state of California, it is punishable with a $500 fine if you detonate a nuclear explosive. Yeah, just be aware that there might not be anyone around to collect the fine. Laws that are, you know, archaic, illogical, irrelevant. And we laugh. But sometimes, that's how we can approach parts of the Bible, isn't it? We come to the Bible and we find certain laws and we begin to think, oh, this is outdated. This feels so irrelevant. This, this feels weird. And, and there's no greater culprit than the book of Leviticus. Come on, let's be honest with ourselves. You know how it goes, right? You, you make your Bible in a year plan, you know, December, coming to the end of December, January 1st. I'm going to read through the Bible in a year, next year. Then you make it through Genesis. 
Then Exodus, everything's going well. Then this, these long chapters in Exodus on the building of the tabernacle. And, and you're like, okay, just push through. And then you finish Exodus. And then the plan is scrapped and you move on with life, right? Because you reach this book called Leviticus. And there's all of these laws on sacrifices, priesthood, skin diseases, all of these things that just feel outdated, irrelevant, illogical, weird, maybe, dare I say. You know, it's, it's the same even for skeptics and opponents of Christianity. For instance, uh, skeptics who will criticize biblical morality will often point to the book of Leviticus and say, oh, you Christians with your morals, you know, how come you eat shellfish? And how come you wear jeans? Because these laws just feel so out of date. But brothers and sisters, the book of Leviticus is God's own word. And the Lord has told us that all of scripture is profitable for us to be equipped for every good work. Most importantly, our Lord Jesus Christ himself has said that all of the Bible, the law, the prophets, and the writings points to him. And that includes the book of Leviticus. It is true especially of the book of Leviticus. This book is about Jesus. And in it, you'll also see one of our Lord's favorite Old Testament verses. We'll learn about that later. So today we are starting our series through this fascinating book, and I believe it will be of great profit to us. And I want to introduce us today, this morning, to the book of Leviticus with three questions. First, why? Why are we going through Leviticus as a church? Second, where? Where is Leviticus in God's story? And, and the answer to this second question will be key for us to understand the answer to the third question, which is what? What is the message of Leviticus? And so as we enter this book today and in the weeks to come, I hope that our hearts will be gripped by its message, that we'll grow in our desire for fellowship with the Holy God who calls us into his presence, who wants us to find life in his holy presence. So first, why? Why are we going to spend several weeks where I'm studying and preaching and you're listening and reading and learning the book of Leviticus? Three reasons. First, Leviticus is God's word to his people. We're studying Leviticus because it is God's word to his people. And I mean that quite literally. I don't just mean that this book is the inspired word of God and it's in the Bible, which it is. It is God's inspired word to us. But also the book of Leviticus, more than any other book in the Bible, contains direct speech from God. God speaks verbally, directly. His speech is recorded more in the book of Leviticus than any other book in the scriptures. Isn't that amazing? It is staggering to see the amount of direct speech that the Lord gives us in Leviticus. 
Leviticus begins with God revealing the way to him by God speaking. Look at Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 1. The Lord, look at the, look at the verbs of speech in this verse, in this one verse, the emphasis on speech. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, God calls, God speaks, God says. It's amazing when you think of it. The almighty creator God, who in Genesis chapter 1 speaks, and by his word created the universe. The covenant Lord, who speaks and rescues his people from bondage in Egypt and enters into covenant with them. The holy God who comes to his people at Mount Sinai in fire and in smoke and thunder and lightning and speaks to them his law. This God is speaking to his people. And he's not just speaking to the people of Israel a long time ago. Brothers and sisters, he's speaking to us today. You know, it's very common, it's become increasingly common in evangelical circles especially for us to kind of desire a personal word from God. But people will often disregard the Bible and, and will want, you know, I want God to speak to me. Some kind of a subjective individual experience. Or you'll even say things like, oh, God spoke to me and said, or God told me and said, friends, if you talk like that, you better have Bible chapter and verse to back it up. It's dangerous when we begin to rely on our personal feelings or thoughts and, and say God spoke to me. You want to see where God speaks? He speaks in the Bible. And he speaks preeminently in the book of Leviticus. Here God speaks and he's showing to his people how to draw near to him. Friends, the way to God is through the word of God. The way to God is through the word of God. For us to know him, for us to draw near to him, for us to live in fellowship with him, God must take the initiative. He must reveal. He must speak. And in Leviticus, he has spoken. And so we must listen. Why are we doing Leviticus? First, because in Leviticus, we find God's word to his people. Second, because Leviticus calls us to holy worship. Leviticus calls us to holy worship. The COVID-19 pandemic has stretched on and on. It's 18 months now. None, none of us would have imagined this in March 2020. It's brought so much trial and pain job loss, financial uncertainty, restrictions, the constant fear of infection, for many of us the devastating loss of losing loved ones in this past year, separation from family. But you know, I think eternity will reveal that the most devastating effect of this season, the most destructive effect of this pandemic is that many of us have pushed the Lord out of our lives. For many of us, the Lord has become marginalized. And I continue to grow concerned, deeply concerned, as are our elders, 
and as should be our members, about many of our members who are missing, many of whom have had no meaningful interaction with the church in any way, shape, or form for nearly 18 months now. So many of us have marginalized God, pushed Him to the periphery of our minds and lives. Many of us limping along spiritually. Some have checked out completely. Well, friends, Leviticus reminds us that the Lord will not have us halfway. There's no discount devotion with God. This book shows us that the Lord cares about every area and aspect of our lives. He wants us to be wholly, completely devoted to Him. And in this book, He invites us to approach Him, to have fellowship with Him, to worship Him. For those who are wandering, the Lord, through this book, invites us to find our way back to Him. And Leviticus teaches us that devotion to God, living in His holy presence is the way to life. Separation from God leads to death. That's our second reason. First, because in Leviticus, we find God's word to us. Second, because Leviticus calls us to holy worship. Third reason why we're going through the book of Leviticus is because in Leviticus, we see Jesus. We see our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you maybe have had this experience. Uh, I've had this quite frequently during this subnormal COVID-19 season. It's a pretty common experience. Is you meet someone for the first time, and, and you know, you're meeting each other with masks. And then you, know, you might meet several other times, and you've only ever seen them with a the mask. And it's fascinating how the human mind works. You begin to construct some kind of an image of their face, in your mind, even though you've never seen that, you've, you've constructed a mental image of their face. And then, you know, you're, you go out for coffee or lunch, and they take off the mask. And what you see now is something different from what your mind had constructed. Now you see them on Zoom, it's like, oh, that's different from what I thought, you know, what, how I imagined you. And, and now there's this clash in your mind between the, the new face that you see, the actual face, and then the face that you imagined, and, you know, your, your mind tries to process and eventually you forget what you had imagined and now you know the person's actual face and even with the, you know, you see, you see it that way. Reading the book of Leviticus can be like that. You know, you open it and then you see all of these strange laws and sacrifices and rituals and all of this and you form some kind of a mental image of the book in your mind. But then you realize and you learn that the book is all about Jesus. And, and you see the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the face of Jesus. And now you're reading Leviticus with the face of Jesus Christ in view. And it changes how you view this book. And all of a sudden it all makes sense and you encounter Jesus on every page and in every chapter. You know, it's also true the other way around. Not only does Jesus help us understand Leviticus... But Leviticus helps us understand who Jesus is. You cannot fully understand the New Testament. You cannot fully understand who Jesus is and what Jesus does without knowing the book of Leviticus. For instance, if you're reading the letter to the Hebrews, which speaks about Jesus being our great high priest, that he is the high priest who leads us into God's presence. What does it mean that Jesus is a priest? 
you know, we, we might be tempted to think of him like we think of priests in any other religious system, but that's not true. No, we must understand Jesus being a priest because he is a priest like the priests in the book of Leviticus. We understand his priesthood by understanding this priesthood. Or when we read the New Testament and we see that Jesus' death on the cross is our sacrifice. Christ is our sacrifice. What does it mean that Christ is our sacrifice? What is the meaning of his death on the cross? Again, we're not to interpret Jesus' sacrifice just by using sacrificial system from any other world religion. That's wrong. That would cause us to misunderstand Jesus' sacrifice. The right way to understand what Jesus has done on the cross, Jesus' sacrifice, is by understanding the meaning of sacrifice in Leviticus. It's the same with so many other things that Jesus does. Even his miracle of cleansing lepers, for example, you'll understand that when you understand clean and unclean and those categories in this book. So friends, the book of Leviticus is like a photo album. You know, some of you are old enough to remember photo albums or you even have them. And you know, you, you pull out the photo album and you look at old pictures of the family in different places. These days, you're not gonna do that. You just have it all on the cloud or on the phone or whatever. Same, same idea. And you know, you want to look more closely at a particular time you spent on vacation or remember a particular person and you look at the photos in the, in, in the uh, photo album or you, know, you open it up on your, your phone and you zoom in and you look at this particular feature and that particular aspect and Leviticus allows us to slow down and to look and to carefully observe features, aspects, of Jesus. Beautifully, clearly, this book shows us the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we're going to be spending the next couple of months reading and hearing Leviticus. Because in it, God's word to us is revealed. It calls us to holy worship and it reveals to us our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's some homework for you all. All right, homework. I want to call and invite all of us to read this book over the next several weeks together. All right, uh, you're going to get the most out of this sermon series by reading Leviticus alongside the sermons. And here's my commitment to you. All right, you can read this book by just spending 30 minutes a week. I didn't say 30 minutes a day. 30 minutes a week, that's like more like five minutes a day. And if you spend 30 minutes a week over the next several weeks, you will finish this book alongside the sermon series. We'll send out a reading plan so you can follow along as the sermons go, which passages are which. And I hope that you will join me in reading this book together and looking at Jesus in Leviticus. Right. So that's your homework and that was the answer to question number one, why? Question number two, where? Where are we in God's story? Where is this book in the unfolding story and plan of God? Now, that's a very important question. It's necessary to ask to understand any book of the Bible, especially books of the Old Testament, and especially the book of Leviticus. Leviticus appears as part of the first five books of the Bible called the Law, the books of Moses, also known as the 
Pentateuch, Penta means five, and Leviticus is the center of the five. It's got two books on either side, Genesis and Exodus on this side, and Numbers and Deuteronomy on the other side. This is the central book of the first five books. And it's not just central in its placement and arrangement, it is also the center book in terms of the themes of this book and, and, and the progression of the story. I mean, you think about it from Genesis and Exodus. Genesis begins with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And then because of their sin, they're driven out from the Garden of Eden. They go east of the Garden. They're out this way. And, and then humanity is, you know, traveling from the Garden. God's people go down into Egypt. And then God rescues them from Egypt and brings them to Mount Sinai. Right? That's where we are at the end of Exodus. In the book of Numbers, God's people begin at Sinai. They go down into the wilderness. And then they come out of the wilderness and they're at the boundary of the promised land at the end of Deuteronomy. So do you see this journey? We're going from Eden to Egypt to Sinai. And then from Sinai to wilderness to promised land. And right in the middle is Sinai. And all of Leviticus takes place at Sinai. So you have a journey to Sinai, you have Leviticus in the center, and then you have a journey away from Sinai. This is the central book. And, and the way that the story unfolds, it's all about coming back into God's presence. You see, the Bible begins in Genesis with God creating heaven and earth. By speaking, he creates a beautiful world, and he creates Adam and Eve in his own image after his likeness to be his representatives, to live in his presence, in fellowship with him, to have life with him. And he places them in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sin. They rebel against God's rule. They disobey and break God's command. And because of their sin, they face judgment in the form of exile. Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden. They're sent out towards the east. And then as we come to the book of Exodus, we find God's people, now his covenant people, the descendants of Abraham in bondage in Egypt. God acts mightily to rescue them, to redeem them from Egypt. And he brings them to himself. And at Sinai, they are given God's law. And then you have these multiple chapters in Exodus. I, I don't know if you've ever wondered, why do we have so many chapters about this? Where they're building the tabernacle, this tent in the wilderness. Several chapters with the instructions for how to build it. And then several chapters towards the end of Exodus where they actually build it. What happens at the end of that? God comes down at the end of Exodus and fills that tabernacle with his presence. He is going to dwell among his people. And that's the first time that God is making his dwelling with people ever since the Garden of Eden. God dwelled with people in Eden. And since then, they've been out of his presence. 
They don't have his presence in their midst again until the end of Exodus when God comes down and fills the tabernacle. God says as much in the book of Exodus chapter 29 verses 45 and 46 speaking of the tabernacle, the tent. He says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And you know, we could do a whole one-hour Bible study on this. But the tabernacle, the tent that Moses and the people of Israel built, the instructions were given very specifically. Because you see, this tabernacle was meant to be a mini Garden of Eden. It's meant to correspond in several ways to the Garden of Eden, to represent the Garden of Eden. You'll see that, I, I mean, I can show you several, like I said, you could do a whole long Bible study on this, but I want to show you a few correspondences. First, in, in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12, for example, when God is speaking, that we read earlier today, when God is speaking of dwelling among his people, he says, and this is his dwelling in the tabernacle, he says, I will walk among you. That's an uncommon way of, of speaking of walking in Hebrew. It says, he says, it's literally, I, I will walk to and fro among you. Where else have you seen God walking to and fro? Genesis chapter 3 verse 8, after Adam and Eve sinned, the Lord God, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the midst of the garden. Walking to and fro, same word in Hebrew. You say, okay, is there a little bit more than that? Yes, there is. Think of this, the entry into the garden. Genesis chapter 3 verse 24, God drove out the man so he drove out Adam and Eve, which direction? Towards the east. Because it says at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, so these fearful, fearsome creatures, we angelic beings, we don't know what they look like. He placed the cherubim at the east of the garden and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. When they build the tabernacle, from what direction do they enter the tabernacle? They enter from the east. It represents coming back towards God, coming back towards Eden. And as you go further and further in, now the tabernacle was constructed, you might remember, you might know this, in three sections. You had the outermost place, you go one section deeper, there's the holy place where only the priests were allowed to go. You go one section deeper, and that's the innermost place, that's the holy of holies, it is called, or the most holy place. And there was a great curtain, a thick veil separating the holy place from the most holy place before you enter the most holy place. What was embroidered on this curtain? Cherubim. Cherubim. Where else have you seen cherubim? At an entry point? At the entry to the Garden of Eden. Indicating that to come into the most holy place is like coming into the presence of God in Eden once again. What are the other correspondences we see? If you know the construction of the tabernacle and its furnishings, you know that in the center of the tabernacle, uh, in the holy place, there was a lampstand. And this lampstand was shaped like a tree. Again, if you read its instructions, very specific instructions, it's meant to be shaped like a tree. And the lampstand gives out the light representing the life of God's presence. Where else have you seen a tree somewhere in the center? 
Back in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life. The lampstand corresponds to the tree of life. If, if that's still not enough to convince you, you can keep, keep doing this. Like I said, it's a, it's a whole Bible study. Um, the task that God gave Adam in the garden, Genesis 2.15, he places Adam in the garden and tells him to work it and to keep it. Those are very specific words in Hebrew. And, and they are a pair together. And that pair of words is never again used in the Hebrew Bible except for one place. That is to describe the duty of the priests in the tabernacle. They were to work it and keep it. Friends, this tabernacle existed as a way for man to experience God's presence once again as in the Garden of Eden. And we see God coming down to make his dwelling, to be with his people at the end of Exodus. But then there's a detail there that raises some tension and some questions. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So on the one hand we see, verse 34, the glory of the Lord fills this meeting place. This, he's made his dwelling with his people. But on the other hand we see this tension because Moses himself is not able to enter. Moses, the leader of God's people, the one whom God has appointed, Moses cannot enter, dare not enter. What is the way in? That's where the book of Leviticus enters in. Because in Leviticus we see God's first words to his people after he makes his dwelling in their midst. His first words, as one teacher says, with the opening verse, the God who dwells within begins to speak, revealing the way of entry. God is showing us how to come in. So the theme of Leviticus is all about this. The Lord opening a way for sinful humans to live in His presence. And as we read this book, we'll see that the approach to God's presence finds climax in the central chapter of Leviticus, which is Leviticus chapter 16, and this Day of Atonement ritual where the high priest of Israel, once a year, having made sacrifices for the sins of God's people and for himself, would enter into the Holy of Holies, into the immediate presence of God himself. This is the way back to Eden. Friends, Leviticus is a book all about how we, how you and I, can have fellowship with, can dwell with, can draw near to our holy creator God. It shows us the way back to fellowship with God as we had it in the Garden of Eden. It answers the perennial and fundamental human question, how can man find his way back to God? And the answer is, he can't. God must reveal. God must speak. And God has revealed the way in this book. As one scholar says, to understand Leviticus is to understand the way of Yahweh, the path of life. 
And so that answers our second question this morning. Where are we in the story? And it puts us in a position to answer our third question. We've seen why we're doing Leviticus. We've seen where we are in the story. And now we can answer what is the book of Leviticus about? What is the message of Leviticus? And, and under this third question, I'm going to give us five points. All right, five points and, and kind of broadly break up the book. We're going to do an overview, so quickly fly by all of the chapters. I won't go into so much detail today, but we'll have several weeks to carefully look at what Leviticus is saying. Like I said, the main theme is the Lord is opening a way for sinful humans to live in His presence. Leviticus tells us that God desires for us to live in His presence and that He has been gracious to make a way for us to do so. It also tells us that it is in God's presence that we find fullness of life. It's the glory of God's holy presence that enables us to escape chaos and death. So how do we live in God's presence? Five requirements, all right, which will take us through the whole book. First, to live in God's presence, we must approach through sacrifice. We must approach through sacrifice. And this is the message of the first seven chapters of the book. Look at Leviticus chapter 1 verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. And as you continue to read then all the way through chapter 7, we see God's prescriptions for sacrifice. That sacrifice must be offered for people to live in His presence. That sacrifice must be offered for His people to approach Him. And he is very specific about all the requirements for these sacrifices. We'll look at them next week. Why such an emphasis on sacrifice? Friends, it, the reason is because of sin. God is holy. God is perfect, righteous, completely pure in every way. He is devoted to his own righteousness, justice, and glory, and purity. But we are sinful, all of us, born as children of Adam. We come into this world sinful, stained, guilty in every way. And how can sinful human beings dare to approach a holy God? We deserve judgment. We deserve death. We deserve to be consumed for our sin. Well, right from the beginning of the Bible, God shows the way. When Adam and Eve sinned, there was an animal sacrificed, and God clothed them with animal skin. Only blood sacrifice, only death can bear the penalty of sin. And that's what we'll see in these first seven chapters. We'll see a great emphasis on the word atonement, we see this in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 35. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. What does atonement mean? Even the English, uh, English word atonement, if you, if you break it up, it is at one mint. 
sinners are reconciled to God. We're made one with God again because our sin separates us from Him. Our sin places us under His judgment. But what happens in sacrifice? A substitute bears the penalty for sin. There must be death and judgment for sin, but now that death and judgment has been inflicted upon a substitute. An animal's blood has been poured out. Its life has been taken. Its flesh is burned up, showing the cost of our sin before God and the need for blood sacrifice for our sin to be cleansed. And we must provide clarification here. This is not like, you know, some of the ancient religions of the world or other religions in which human beings offer sacrifice as a way to manipulate God or a way to get God to do things for them. No way. In the Bible, it is always God who provides. Who provides Israel with herds and and flocks and bulls and goats to be able to offer sacrifice? It's God himself who has provided them these things. And animals which were brought had to be without blemish, perfect, costly, to show that our sin is costly. God provides the way. You might also be surprised as you read these chapters next week that sacrifice had to be offered even for unintentional sins. You know, sometimes we think of sin only as a matter of intention. And it's true that often sin is a matter of intention. But how easily we deceive ourselves. Sin is sin even if it is unintentional. Any breaking of God's law, whether intentional or not, deserves God's judgment. And so Leviticus shows us that sin, dear friends, is no small matter. We can't just escape our sin or trivialize or say, oh, I just made a mistake, oh, I just didn't know. There are no excuses. There must be be a cost. Our sins must be dealt with through blood sacrifice. As one author says, the way to God is through a bloody knife and a burning altar. So that's what we see in the first seven chapters. And that's our first requirement as we consider what is the message of Leviticus. To live in God's presence, we must approach through sacrifice. Second, to live in God's presence We must approach through God's appointed mediator. We must approach through God's appointed mediator. And this is the content of chapters 8 to 10. Chapters 8 to 10. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And if you keep reading uh, those chapters, you'll see that there is an ordination service, an installation service that is performed to set apart a particular class of men to God as priests. And, And these priests were appointed by God to be the mediator mediators between God and the people. In fact, that's where the book of Leviticus gets its name. Leviticus comes from Levi, right? And when I say Levi, I don't mean Levi's genes. Levi was a tribe of Israel from which they drew the priests, right? That's where the priestly class was from. And and these priests had a dual responsibility. They represent the people to God. So they are the ones who bring the blood of the sacrifice into the holy place. They are the ones who are dealing with the altar and performing these rituals. 
The high priest is the one who enters the Holy of Holies once a year. These priests make intercession on behalf of the people to God. And they were to represent God to the people. One of the duties often forgotten or neglected is the duty of the priests to be those who teach. They were to be the teachers and administrators of God's law among the people. They had a representative role. And so we see this, the need for an appropriate God-appointed mediator for us to approach God. And already we're beginning to feel this tension. God wants to be near to us. God wants to draw us near to Him. And yet there is this distance created by sin so that we can only come through sacrifice. We cannot come directly. We must come through the priests, through the mediators. So we've seen two requirements so far for us to live in God's presence. Sacrifice, appointed mediators. Third, to live in God's presence, we must be clean. We must be clean. All right, so so far so good. I'm, I'm tracking Pastor Aubrey. And we made it through chapters 1 to 7, sacrifice, chapters 8 to 10, priesthood. And, you know, okay, I understand. But then for the next five chapters, you're wondering what in the world is going on. Because you enter chapters 11 to 15, and now you're suddenly talking about clean and unclean. Some animals are clean. Some animals are unclean. You can eat this. You can't eat that. Then he's talking about skin diseases. It's talking about mold in the houses. It's talking about you know, purification after childbirth. It's talking about bodily fluids and discharges. What is happening here? We're back in the outdated, archaic, irrelevant laws. Well, you see, the best way to understand these laws is to see them as based on Israel's relationship to the Lord. God institutes these laws to permit Israel to draw near to Him appropriately, to enter His realm. Now, last month we were in uh, Ras Al Khaimah, and I took my kids uh, to this trampoline park called Fly Zone. It was lots of fun. And uh, Fly Zone had different areas where different kids were allowed to play and jump. And it's height based, all right? So if you're above a certain height, you can go into this zone, and then you have a higher height requirement, and then you can enter that zone. And then if you meet this height requirement, then, then you can enter this really fun zone, right? Well, that's kind of what. Leviticus does, especially in these chapters, right? We see that all of life in Israel was demarcated into different zones. There are different statuses, and each status gives you access to a different zone. All persons, places, or objects could occupy one of three statuses, all right? So the first status is something or someone could be unclean, right? Unclean. And uncleanness, this, this again, is not talking just about moral uncleanness, this is ritual uncleanness, all right? Status of unclean, allowed you only in the outermost zone. The next level was clean, clean. And the status of clean meant that you were fit for God's presence, that you could be within the camp, that you could be in the outer courts of the tabernacle, clean, that's the next status, all right? And then the third and most sacred level, sacred status, was the level of holy. Holy. If something was demarcated as holy, that means it was belonging to God alone, devoted to God. So unclean, clean, holy. 
So first we're going to distinguish between clean and unclean because that's what chapters 11 to 15 do. And what is the function of these laws of clean and unclean? Well, the first function of being clean or unclean was it served to demarcate life from death, right? Life from death. Anything that was associated with life is clean. Things that are associated with death in any way were marked as unclean because God's presence is life and outside of God's presence is death. So if something is associated with death, then it's not fit for God's presence. A second reason for clean and unclean was to distinguish Israel from the nations. To distinguish Israel from the nations. We see this very clearly. God says it in Leviticus chapter 20 when explaining the rationale for the food laws. Here's what he says. I'm going to start reading in uh, second half of verse 24. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore be separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples. So clean and unclean serve to separate Israel as God's people, as clean, from the rest of the world, from outside, which was unclean. And finally, and, and I think I've come to this interpretation by studying this, I think that what was clean represents things that are fit for heaven. Because as we enter into the holy place, we're entering what is, like I said, a mini Eden. And by being a mini Eden, it becomes a mini heaven. So why do we see something like childbirth result in uncleanness? Because in heaven, there won't be childbirth. Why do we see skin diseases or any kind of deformity as being called unclean? Because once we're in, finally in heaven, there won't be skin diseases or deformities. People will be made whole and perfect. So things were designated unclean if such things are not representative of what heaven will be like. All right? And so, very importantly, these laws served to separate God's people from this world. And I want to ask you, dear Christian, this morning, is your life distinct from this world? Is your life separated from a love for this world, which defiles us and constantly draws us away from God? God doesn't just call us to separation from this world. He also calls us to devotion to Him. He calls us to be like Him, to fully belong to Him. He calls us to be holy. And that's our fourth requirement to live in God's presence. To live in God's presence, we must be holy. And that's the purpose of chapters 17 to 22. God doesn't just move us from unclean to clean. He wants us to be completely holy. And we'll see those requirements in those chapters, 17 to 22. Remember, holy, what is the meaning of being holy? It means to be wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely devoted to God. And, and Leviticus shows us first our need for holiness. Why must we be holy to live in God's presence? Because God is holy. He is the Lord. Again and again, when speaking of these holiness laws, the Lord says, like he says in Leviticus 18.2, I am the Lord your God. God is holy. And so we need holiness in our lives. David Wells, the 
brilliant author of evangelical Christianity, he says this, it is this God, majestic and holy in his being, this God whose love knows no bounds because his holiness knows no limits, who has disappeared from the modern evangelical world. He has been replaced in many quarters by a God who is slick and slack, whose moral purposes turn out to be avuncular, which means like from a friendly uncle. Advice that we can disregard or negotiate as we see fit. God is holy. And so we have a need for holiness. Leviticus calls us to pursue holiness because God is holy. God says in Leviticus 19.2, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. We are to be holy because we belong to Him. Our lives are to reflect His character, His justice, His righteousness, His purity. I said Jesus' favorite verse is from Leviticus. That's the verse, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because that kind of love reflects God's character, Leviticus 19.18. Well, you might tem be tempted to think of this as a list of do's and don'ts for holiness. But let me caution you against that. Leviticus is not just a list of do's and don'ts. We don't make ourselves holy so that we can come to God. No, as we read this, we see that God himself is our source of holiness. He makes us holy so that we can live holy lives in his presence. He makes us holy because he is holy. He says again and again, chapter 20, verse 8, and you'll see this multiple times. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who makes you holy. He makes his people holy. And the purpose of our holiness is so that we can have fellowship with him, so that we can dwell with him, so that we can live in his presence which leads to our final requirement to live in God's presence from the book of Leviticus. And that closes out the book in chapters 23 to 27. To live in God's presence, we must come through sacrifice, we must come through an appointed mediator, we must be clean, we must be holy, and finally we must worship as God has appointed. These chapters, verses 23 to 27, are all about what we call sacred time. Sacred time. Look at the start of chapter 23, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. And then as you read that, you'll see God appoints six days and then a seventh day which is to be devoted to him, the Sabbath. As you keep reading, you'll see God appoints various feasts and festivals. Each of these has a rich meaning which tells us about the person and work of Christ, and we'll look at that when we come to that section. Israel were God's people. Their lives were to be regulated by God's command to meet with him in worship and worship as he prescribed. That's the purpose of holiness, fellowship with God. And they were to come as he commanded. It's the same today. We are commanded to gather weekly in God's presence, physically, with God's people, to worship Him, to have fellowship with Him. This is what we were made for. This is what we were saved for. This is why we are created. Meeting and living with God in the house of God is the goal of holiness and the source of our holiness. That's why the tabernacle is called, often this other term, the tent of meeting a place for fellowship 
And yet we see in the book of Leviticus that there was danger and there was distance. In one of the few stories in this book we see in chapter 10, the shocking incident. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified and before all the people, I will be glorified. So these guys try to come casually into God's presence, not by the way that he had prescribed. They come with their own imagination and inventiveness and the result is death. Friends, God is not a God that we can trifle with. He is not a God that we can fool around with. As one pastor says, God is not just our only hope, he is also our greatest threat. He is not casual. And so there's this tension. And the tension in the book of Leviticus in response to this incident, God reveals the appropriate way for intimate access to him. The way back to him. You might have been wondering in my outline, well, he missed chapter 16, so where's chapter 16 in this? Well, chapter 16 is the center. And God starts chapter 16 by saying, after the death of the two sons of Aaron, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark that he may not die. And then verse 3, in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. And we see the central feast, the day of atonement ritual, where two goats were sacrificed. One bearing the people of Israel's sin out into the wilderness where it would die. And the other sacrificed for Israel's sin that the high priest Aaron would bring its blood into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, bringing cleansing and representing entering God's presence just like in the Garden of Eden once again. And you hear that and you say, oh wow, it's like going back into Garden of Eden, but Pastor Aubrey, just one guy? Just one day in the year into God's intimate presence? I thought this was about fellowship with God. Look at this distance. And, and all of this repetition again and again, year after year, year after year, we're offering sacrifices. Would there be something more? Would there be something greater? Would there be something more lasting and permanent? Friends, the good news is there is. You see, all of this blood, all of these sacrifices, all of these priests, all of these rituals, year after year, repeated and repeated, and we see again and again in the Old Testament, it doesn't bring any lasting change. The people of Israel keep failing, they keep falling. Because there was no cleansing within. There was no completeness. This was all temporary and provisional and pointing forward. Telling us we need a better sacrifice. We need a better priest. We need to be made truly clean and fit for God's presence. We need to be made truly holy. We need to be brought into fellowship with God. And God has done just that. He has provided the way for us to come into true and lasting fellowship with Him. For all of us to have access. Because God has sent His only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. And through His death on the cross, pouring out His blood, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice 
offered once for all, who purifies us from all our sin, makes us clean, makes us holy. Jesus, the Son of God, he is the perfect priest and the perfect mediator who lives and intercedes for us and leads us into our heavenly home. He has entered into the Holy of Holies once for all. The temple veil has been torn in two so that we can draw near and experience life in God's presence. Jesus is the way that God has appointed for us to know and worship him. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I want to tell you once again, dear friend, God is holy. We are sinful and deserve God's judgment. But God has provided a way for us to be reconciled to him. It is through the sacrificial death of his own son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is risen now and calls us to enter in. And the way to enter in is through repenting of our sin and putting our trust in Jesus. Because through Jesus, God makes his dwelling with us once again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the true and living way that you have given us in and through our Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. May we, through faith in him, draw near to your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.